Welcome to Fintech Impact. This podcast is an exploration of the financial technology world, interviewing different fintech entrepreneurs about what they do, their story, and what their impact is on consumers, incumbents, and the industry as a whole. Here's your host, award-winning financial planner, university lecturer, and writer, Jason Pereira. Hello, and welcome to Fintech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Before we get started with today's show, one quick announcement. I actually serve on the board of an association known as the Individual Finance and Insurance Decision Center, and we're hosting our 2018 conference this year on November 6th, between 9 and 12, at the DeGroote School of Business in Burlington, Ontario. The theme this year is new developments in fintech and their impact on society. We will have topics ranging from crowdfunding and societal impact to the role of alternative data and AI in fintech lending to initial coin offerings and the performance of them and legal risks of blockchain. For those of you interested in attending, I will make this information available on my LinkedIn site. So moving on to today's show. Today on the show, I have Gary Baker. Gary is the COO of Canex. Canex is, we'll call them one of the OGs of fintech. They've been around for 35 years and they're the largest player in the space. So what Canex does is they provide quotation, analytical, and quantitative data surrounding annuities and term deposits. And with that, here's my interview with Gary Baker. Good morning, Gary. Good morning, Jason. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. So Gary Baker of Canex, tell us all about Canex. Well, Canex, uh, it's about 35 years old, Mm -hmm. uh, founded in Toronto. We now operate in the U.S. as well as Canada. Yes, as old as the fintech gets. Uh, Right, exactly. (laughs) Well, actually before fintech, maybe. Yes, there was no term for it back in those days. (laughs) And it was started by Lowell Aronoff and and Alex Melvin out of Lowell's apartment. Basic premise of of Canex was to provide a one-stop shop for annuity pricing, if you will. So that has grown from then to today where we really provide pricing and analytic services for retirement savings and retirement income products. And uh, with that, we have a a team of actuaries and a team of quants, as well as a technology team, primarily based in Toronto. But we also have employees in the U.S. and we serve uh, really the financial uh, services industry as a B2B business. So before we get into the actual business, let's just go over your personal history. How did you come to be where you are? Sure. Well, I joined Canex about eight years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, my prior experience was about 20 years with GE Capital, primarily around product management and marketing and held a variety of positions, both in North America as well as internationally and in a variety line of businesses and ultimately ended up with the insurance business of GE Capital, which was the part that eventually became Genworth when they mm-hmm. IPO'd yep. that out in the early 2000s. And then from that, moved over to Mass Mutual for about five years, where I headed up product and marketing for their retirement income business. And uh, it wasn't until really uh, 2008 when a lot of change was happening in the industry. I had the oper- you could put, that's putting it lightly. Yeah, well, you know, there were mushroom clouds going the off. The world was ending, place. yes. <laughs> And so uh, everybody, a lot of people were affected by that. In, in my uh, in my case, it provided an opportunity for me to uh, move over to uh, something that I always wanted to do, working for a small business and uh, as Good. opposed to a Fortune 50 business. All right. So let's get into the various lines of business. So you break them up specifically into kind of two segments, correct? You have the, well, I'll let you talk about that. Yeah, sure. As I mentioned, the, the one segment I'll put in the category of retirement income, which really revolves around annuities mm-hmm. and how annuities are placed within financial financial plans. Mm -hmm. And the second category would be uh, savings products. And um, 
for that, although annuities can be positioned as savings products, we also support the pricing of funds, mutual funds out in the market in, in Canada, as well as term deposits and uh, also loans from banks. So okay. with that, in the U.S., we're primarily focused around annuities. In Canada, we're much broader in facilitating the pricing and exchange of that information across a, a wider variety of products. So let's let's deal first with the banking and pricing side, because I think that's the easier one to nail down. I think we're probably going to talk a lot longer on the annuity and retirement side. Sure. Uh, it seems like it's the more compelling <laughs> conversation, too. <laughs> but I mean, for all intents and purposes, I was first familiar with you guys as being kind of the quotation service for GICs or term deposits and annuities. So basically I go on to one place and I'm able to shop the entire market for best rates right. based on that. So pretty much a, you know, almost a big data play, data aggregation play, and you pump that out to the market. So in general, your market there, has it been predominantly advisors or has it been institutional? How has that worked out? It's both really. Ultimately, the premise of the business is to provide a central exchange for brokers to sell third-party products. And whether that's on the annuity side or on the term deposit side, it just becomes more efficient for that advisor to go to one spot to get today's pricing so they can do the comparative or the evaluation on what's best out there today. Staying with the term deposit side of the equation, as we're talking about now, when we started the business, a lot of what we do revolves around the strength of our platform, mm-hmm. you know, how robust it is. In fact, there's probably the two largest investments we make as a business is number one on technology in our platform and number two, research and development. But in getting the annuity operation up and running initially as a startup, about 10 years after that, we found the opportunity to leverage that annuity platform or the infrastructure that we built to also do these other things in the Canadian market, specifically around term deposits. So you could say it was opportunistic to leverage what you've initially built to a kind of branch out and apply to different aspects or or different financial products at that point. So with that, there was an opportunity to fill a gap that was there in the term deposit market to really be a central clearinghouse or exchange, not only for the pricing of those GICs, but also our Canex financial network allows for the uh, accounting, if you will, between independent brokers and those banks or credit unions to uh, help facilitate those transactions every day. So it was taking uh, our tomato farm and making some ragu out of it, if you will, and maybe some tomato juice. And it was a great opportunity and it's worked out really good for us. So two interesting follow-ups to that. So you say you're facilitating transactions. So what what does that mean exactly? Yeah. So what that really means is that an advisor who, or dealer who has multiple advisors uh, during the course of the day, they may sell quite a number of GICs across a number of banks and, and credit unions. At the end of the day, the dealer will, will aggregate those transactions and then send us a file of which then we, we store that and then we redistribute that information and repackage it back to the manufacturers of those GICs so that they can, in a much easier way, get the full accounting of who sold what across the So Canadian you're becoming market. the exchange, essentially, for Correct. lack of a better term. Yeah, right. And so like, from that, then yeah. it greatly... Uh, it provides a lot of efficiencies around the clearing and, and the exchange of the funds, if you will, between the dealer and the and I'm not surprised that that was deficient given that it's such a antiquated line of business, right? In terms of, you know, how far back it goes and still predominantly paper-based and whatnot. So not surprised at all that there was an opportunity for you to insert yourself there and make yourself the facilitator of that transaction. Good. So in terms of the actual data acquisition, so where is that, where are these rates coming from at this point? I'm assuming that everybody's decided to offer it up to you guys as a means of actual competition or are you still having to extract some of this the old-fashioned way off of websites? or No, I I think one of our key values or tenets of our business is that we work directly with the product manufacturers. 
and they will actually automate it on an automated basis or in some cases in the old days, post-it notes, but they will feed us the information directly. And mm-hmm. there's a value for them to doing that because obviously they can get access to the whole network of, of rates for competitive intelligence. But it really goes back to our annuity business as well, where we want our distributors, the distributors mm-hmm. that we support, they want the assurance that what they're seeing is correct Absolutely. And real. And there's no other way to really do that unless you're working directly with the carrier. And then working with the carrier or the issuer, you want to provide some value back to them as well in return for working with our processes. And Mm -hmm. and we validate and test those rates to make sure they're correct so that when the dealer receives them, they know it's right. I mean, it's such a highly competitive commoditized market in many ways that I can see why they would facilitate that. Because I mean, you look at some other lines of business where specific types of insurance, for instance, where they're actually almost reluctant to do that sort of thing and almost think of, of, of again, barriers to entry as being kind of a um, strategic advantage. You know, friction is not is not something they want to eliminate because they think that's going to more likely lock in the client, but right. is what it is. So it's interesting to see that, you know, some areas they totally get the openness uh, benefit of it and some others they, they resist. But Well, Jason, you bring up a really good point because ultimately our business model is driven by the need of the broker. And absolutely. The and I and, need the client when it comes down to it. Yeah. Sure. Absolutely. And they want the assurance that what they're seeing is the right thing. So they don't get all wrapped around the axle and trying to complete the transaction. So with that, uh, especially the larger dealers that we work with, they're the ones that go back to the issuer or the carrier and direct them to work with us because they know that we have the robust platforms and, mm-hmm. and the processes in place. And the carrier make, wants to play, they got to basically plug in. Right. So that essentially the distributor is the one that's instructing the, yeah. the carrier or the issuer to really work with us and work with our processes through our clearing yeah, system. You've effectively become the platform for aggregation. Right. Exactly. Excellent. Good. So let's move on to the annuity business. Now, this presents some very unique challenges, I would think, given the esoteric nature of contracts across the board, especially in the U.S. I can't imagine the daunting task it is to try to basically fully understand all these things. Oh, yes. In fact, that that's really where we come into play. As I mentioned, our, one of our big points of investment is our technology platform. Of course, that includes information security. Because we're tying into banks and mm-hmm. all these things. So as a result, we have to be just as secure. But the second point of emphasis and in, in investment that we really focus on is research and development. So even as recently as 2013, we purchased Moshe Malevsky's uh, research business. Oh, yeah. I gotta, I'm always happy to plug his name <laughs> for those background, just friend, mentor, colleague, former professor of mine. So... Uh, there you are, Moshe. You got your plug. <laughs> <laughs> well, with that, what that did is provide us the ability to bring in the additional ability to deconstruct and reinterpret what you would consider very complex products. Mm-hmm. Income annuities, both in Canada and the U.S., are pretty simple. Single premiums are pretty straightforward. Right. Commoditized market, you know, it's very easy to quote those. There's not a lot of differentiation between them. So, right, yeah, and you're playing vanilla. Basically. So, and so we do very, we did very well with that. Now, you can imagine with that type of infrastructure that. That's also why it lent us again into term deposits too, into some degree. Different product, but similar, you know, kind of commoditized, straightforward. Right. But in the US, that's only 5% of the market, annuity market. The other 95% of the market are what you would refer to as deferred annuities or savings annuities, which are essentially structured products that could be considered rather complicated. That's putting it lightly. Right. Depending on the ones I've seen. I mean, some of these contracts I've tried to dissect and like, really? Ugh, yeah. How so, I, like, how do I price this? <laughs> exactly. Well, and and uh, sure enough, it's not only is it confusing to the consumer who's considering these contracts, but it's similarly confusing to the advisor who's trying to figure out which ones could provide the better benefit. 
And, and um, that's why they get a black eye, unfortunately, is all this, all this complexity, which basically it's hard to, diff when you have a really beneficial complex product, it's hard to relay that from the ones that are just not that beneficial and complex for the sake of obfuscation, right? Right. So I often feel like the complexity that they add to this industry is actually detrimental because it prevents, you know, creates the market for the Susie Ormans and everybody else in the world to beat them up and call them evil. Right. And, you know, you bring up a great point because that's exactly what we're looking to solve for yeah. with what we do. We want to provide transactional transparency. Mm -hmm. So what happens is the Susie Ormans of the world or advisors or even, you know, other folks out there, distributors, they want the insurance companies to make things as simple as possible. Mm -hmm. They hate the complexity and they essentially want the insurance companies to dumb down these products so that they're more accessible, mm -hmm. maybe more understandable. The rub there and dilemma or the catch 22 is that in order for insurance companies to deliver the best value, whether it's a death benefit or income benefit or the accumulation portion of the contract, which all, by the way, is all wrapped up into one product, if you will. You can almost argue it's a Swiss yeah. army knife. It really is. I've seen some of these right. things with 12 different additional rider benefits that change it dynamically in so many ways. Right. But the reality is they build them this way, not only to try to extract the most value as far as where they want to compete, but also gives the advisor mm -hmm. the ability to then pick the specific option that fits best with that client and that plan. So there's this there's this tug of war between yeah. the market wanting simplicity and the carriers trying to deliver value. So what we do yeah. is through our analytics on top of our core platform, we can basically pull the marketing story Away off, from the it. off of it and then quantitatively provide comparative illustrations and scores as to which contract or which component of the contract will perform the best depending upon that specific client situation. Mm -hmm. And in fairness of pricing as well, which is no doubt a challenge as well. I mean, in, in, in a personal story and how I first met Moshe in his class, I wrote a term paper on the pricing of guaranteed income products in variable contracts in Canada, which later got published, not academically, but nevertheless got published in the industry. <laughs> and it was, you know what? It is the math behind that is actuarial. It's hard to understand. And the average advisor doesn't stand a bloody chance, right? And of course, I was publishing that saying, hey, these things are actually underpriced. And everybody else was basically publishing articles saying these things are fraudulent and, and criminal. And meanwhile, you know, time has proven me correct. Uh, <laughs> you know, not only did a couple of insurers in Canada almost go under because of these guarantees, but uh, they're now some of them are trying to buy their way out of these guarantees. Right. So it's quite hilarious, but it's, it's a real challenge. I mean, you're, you, the advisor does not have the skill set to basically properly value whether or not what they're paying for is actually worth it for the client, right? I mean, you may say, here's the story behind when you use this, but is that a fair price? Sure. So that's, I guess, one of the ways you guys come in. And but that being said, like I said, I'm kind of daunted by the complexity of all this. I mean, that's that's contract by contract that you guys are going right. Like, right. Exactly. And that's where the partnership with the carriers come back into play. It's really important for us to have a very good relationship with the people who build these products, so that their actuaries talk to our actuaries. Yeah. We're able to basically that must be apart. such an entertaining conversation. Well, I'm you, sorry. Should, <laughs> you should see the cocktail parties. It's even better. Oh, lovely. <laughs> Colitis cocktail parties. What's the old story? The the definition of an outgoing actuary is one who looks at your shoes when they're talking to you. Right, exactly. Yeah, we got we and, and those are the type we hire, by yeah. the way. So. No, that's all right. I love actuaries. I got like I've many friends who are not the most interesting people, but now they're great. I'm kidding. Continue. So to date I'm curious, how much of the US market do you think you guys have captured? And in terms of uh, the players in this? Have they all opted in or? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. We've been building out this platform now operationally for the last two years. So the easy parts, the methodology mm -hmm. and, and the processes that we put together to deconstruct 
and then put everything into an apples to apples environment, mm -hmm. if you will, or in as far as a format, if you will. The tough part has been uh, building the, the systems and the processes, which will allow us to be more efficient in programming these products into the platform. And most importantly, to allow our clients to configure what we provide as an industry utility into the processes they want to deploy this pricing. So they just don't deploy this at the point of sale mm -hmm. where the advisor is quickly evaluating one product versus the other to place the contract. We take this information and what we do, and we can also support the compliance department at the firm who may want to look at different elements that we produce. Or we feed financial planning tools through APIs, if you will. Also for research and development, even for evaluation of enforced business. So again, we, we don't provide just one path into what we do through our, our platform and us acting as an industry utility. We want to be as flexible and configurable so that whether it's the distributor or the carrier or even a service provider who does financial planning tools, they can take what we have and apply it into their own process and, and increase the value of what they do. Excellent. So tell me about the uh, the APIs as they feed into financial planning tools. Like, what's the functionality there? Like, what, what to date have you seen people build off of what you provided? Sure. Great question. It can be a variety of things. So one example would be a financial planning process where they're trying to figure out the appropriate allocation, not only between equities and bonds in a portfolio, but... How much of a floor guarantee for income they may want to um, to also account for by using an annuity? You can almost say annuities position as a super bond, if you will, in such a Absolutely. retirement yeah. income portfolio. Yeah. So what they do is to uh, kind of gauge how much of a floor to build within that portfolio. We'll feed them real time through XML, either the average of the type top guarantees in a particular annuity category mm -hmm. or a specific annuity, so that it's fed into the allocation process within that tool. So instead of the advisor saying annuity is going to make X, you're taking real-time data, right. plugging that in there and doing an optimization between traditional market segments and the guaranteed income. Correct. Correct. Yeah. So then they can do what they do best, if you will. Now, that being said, I, and uh, back to our research group, I would have to say that we also, through our acquisition of Moshe's business, we also manage optimization engines for allocation. I'm so, very familiar with those, but we'll, yeah. we'll talk about those in a second. Yeah, sure. Right. Um, <laughs> I am but, a but another. <laughs> But another example of our relationship with financial planning tools are that in some cases, those optimization engines on the tool side, they may go as far as making their own capital market assumptions or assumptions about guarantees in general. Mm -hmm. they'll, they'll then come up with an answer on how much you should put into a particular annuity. Yeah. And then they would feed that information immediately downstream to us so they can immediately see which contract would be the best purchase given that allocation decision. Yeah. So it, it really depends upon how the service provider wants to stage the process. I was going to say that that's where the variability comes in because, I mean, you know, we can get two completely different results just based on assumptions on not just even returns, but correlations of returns and whatnot. So it's a real challenge there, but it's, uh, yeah, it's, it depends on who it's, whose black box you use. That's, that's exactly right. And yeah. when we, when we do comparative illustrations on these products, part of the value, what we do when we program the rules and parameters and, and algorithms of these products on our own platform, we're using a single black box. Mm -hmm. And it's our Canix's black box. So we're putting the same electrical current through every insurance contract. Oh, poor guy worked at UGE before. That's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, there you go. So good. Good. So, so let's talk about your previous company that was once called Quima and is now your quantitative division. Can you tell me about the lines of business there and what that does? Sure. A few things. So we 
In addition to helping support uh, concept development for core services and what we do in, in the valuation of these products and mm-hmm. different ways to compare them, we also look at uh, new-to-the-world concepts or retirement income concepts. In other words, things that may not necessarily involve an annuity as far as what's the optimal systematic withdrawal rate out of investment portfolio by using annuity-like methodology and concepts, except just applying it into the investment-only world. Mm -hmm. You're using the basic same fundamentals as far as how you're looking at a client situation. Bringing Um, longevity essentially into the equation and factoring that into the the portfolio decisions. Exactly right. So we have a research paper coming out on that in a few months. Borrow it to me, please. But as I mentioned before, if you are going to incorporate an annuity or some type of uh, insurance guarantees into the portfolio, we also run optimization and our own methodology for the allocation of assets across investments, annuities, life insurance, or anything else that you would want to consider in the portfolio. Again, using similar methodologies, we create a efficient frontier. You know, instead of risk versus return on the investment side, the axes are basically, do you keep the money or do the kids get the money? And then you optimize yeah. across that, that spectrum. Absolutely. So tell me, I mean, in terms of these parameters, like these are concepts that I absolutely use and embrace, but that's because of who my professors were. But that being said, I'm curious as to how much you see this implemented across the board, both in Canada and the U.S., because it's enough to say, it, I'll tell you, the number of advisors to this date I still see who fail to adopt even a modern portfolio theory approach to management already. And then you start throwing in longevity into that and, and creating a third parameter that has to be contemplated. How much do you see this adopted thus far? It's interesting. In the States, there's a lot more focus and activity around having advisors get more engaged in this type of process. And I say process because of the uh, regulators and even what the Department of Labor had done previously, mm-hmm. but now uh, you have the SEC, NAIC, and other... And other, other yeah, it's uh, not and, going well. <laughs> well, what they're doing is essentially they're moving people away from a product sale into a process sale. And which when you think about it, it's the right thing to do. 100%. Because even if you're selling a product, there should be an underlying empirical reason for why said product's getting sold as opposed to, oh, three times your income. Like just absolutely. Right. And so as a result, the distributors, the advisory firms, even 401k platforms that do planning and support to the participants, they are more focused on providing those tools so that on a fiduciary basis, or semi-fiduciary or whatever along the spectrum you, you fall Depends yourself on. Depends on which branch you're, in, you're <laughs> licensed under, I'm well aware. Right. So that uh, they're doing the right thing and they're covering a basis so that they're not focusing on one product versus the other without going through that process. Mm-hmm. You could even argue that for advisors who have traditionally not sold annuities, by going through a process, they're now obligated to potentially look at an annuity, especially if they're trying to figure out a systematic withdrawal plan. Fantastic. I mean, the number of times our biases come into play, right? And the number of advisors are like, oh, I don't use those. I'm like, well, what if you have a client who's absolutely the perfect textbook fit for using that solution? Right. Well, I don't, I don't, you can't be an expert at everything. I don't use those. And it's like, it's not, it's not about you. <laughs> right? right. So, I mean, yeah, that's the, the fact that you're pushing people into a process that gets hopefully some of that human bias or, or prejudgment out of it would be usually valuable. To right. And then, and then on the flip side, looking here in Canada, I would say it's, it's <laughs> somewhat quite behind than, than the activity that's going on. In fact, it's, we look at the websites and even from the large institutions, whether it's the big six or 
five or six or, or other distribution firms, you really don't see a lot out there with regard to retirement income tools or guidance. In fact, it's or fiduciary standards, to- <laughs> or I could go on for about an hour about this, but yeah. So I think that's a big opportunity where, where the market in Canada can catch up. If there's any will to catch up, unfortunately. <laughs> so, so we'll leave that, put a pin in that argument and walk away from it because I can go on. Anyone who wants to hear that argument, there's the Plan Plus, our a previous episode where Sean Brame and I go off on a tear about that. So if you're interested, by all means, listen to that one. So, okay, great. Last one, one other product line that uh, is kind of mentioned here, kind of buried everywhere else, you know, you're benchmarking in indices. Now let's talk about that because it's not, we're not talking conventional benchmarking in indices. What are we talking about here? Well, we're talking about indices that provide a context for advisors or even consumers, but I would argue more advisors to make an informed decision around whether or not a systematic withdrawal process would outperform Alec putting some money into an annuity. So there's a few indices that we do. You know, one, one indice that we, we produce is called a pay index so that it gives you a sense at any particular day or month what your cash flow return would be coming out of an annuity on a guaranteed basis for certain ages and, mm-hmm. and deferrals. So that if you're thinking about the 4% rule of thumb for a withdrawal for your client. I hate that rule of thumb. It's just, I'm just throwing it and, out there for and simplicity. And you know, for those of you who don't know where that came from, it came from a study. It, was, it wasn't the S&P they looked at. And it was, it was you know, what it was the minimum sustainable rate over the entire history over the S&P. And it was 4%. I'm like, congratulations. You did some back testing. Like that is not an empirical standard, you know, and it is not some sort of universal constant, like the speed of light. Like we get away from that people. people. So yeah, uh, yeah, please. I I don't recommend that one either. Um, (laughs) You know, we, we also had advisors ask us, uh, gee, what's the internal rate of return of this product? And which is kind of like asking an apple and orange question because longevity is the variable. It's the variable. You got three modes of return in annuity. You only, you know, in, in a financial, you know, investment product, you get either principal and the return, yes. the investment. In annuity, it's three. You get three flavors of return. You get the principal, the interest, as well as uh, the longevity credit. Yeah. And then on want. top of that, you have the, the, the tax implications of it, right? They're very, right. very different in Canada and the U.S. So you have the deferral in the U.S. and so we don't get that in Canada. And then you also basically have, you have levelized, they basically both do prescribed payouts, but the U.S. prescribed payout ends at the point at which your capital is returned to you, right. right? So it's, you know, in Canada, we just get to keep on taking that prescribed credit thankfully. Uh, well, they changed the rules and they're not as good as they used to be. Yeah, but, uh, well, actually, and one final indice that I want to point out, yeah. I think is really neat that we've been doing over the last few years in the States is um, we do an income annuity yield curve. And what that yield curve is used is for carriers to do a market valuation of annuitized assets. So the issue that was presented about 10 years ago in the market was that the gorilla in the room was an advisor working for a bank or a wirehouse may have been disincented to sell an income annuity. Oh, because, what a shock. Because guess what? Once you put that money in contract, that money for that client disappears from the AUM report. Oh, I'm well aware of that conflict. So same uh, reason why a lot of universal life or whole life policies are not sold in broker dealer channels, especially through banks. It's because they don't want to see their AUM go down. Right. It's, exactly. So uh, as a result in the category of doing the right thing, a lot of the larger banks decided to really look to a way to provide a market value of that asset that was annuitized so they can place it back into the AUM report so you still have a clear picture of the amount of assets you're really managing for that client. 
So is that an initiative in the U.S.? That's a U.S. initiative. I was going to say, yeah, exactly. I've never heard of that in Canada. <laughs> so what we no. do is, um, instead of using the treasury curve to for the carriers to perform that valuation, that market valuation, because yeah. carriers are doing statutory valuation. But you, and, yeah, you can't you know, do that with the, you can't factor in the longevity credit based on the uh, treasury. Right. Numbers. So what we do is, because of our platform, we can backward solve for, uh, based on actual pricing on our platform, what the crediting rates are across those terms and match it against the U.S. treasury and provide them a unique uh, yield curve so that they can go ahead and do the market valuation and then feed those mm. values back to the banks to place into their and into their AUM report, AUM report, and they do that on a daily basis. Interesting. I like that. I mean, it's it's a nice solution for a problem that shouldn't exist in the first place because you should <laughs> just do the right thing. But nevertheless, yeah, I mean, anything we can do that eliminates a conflict of interest is, is something that I'm very happy to see happen. Be happier to see it happen north of the border, but you know <laughs> I can only hold my breath for so long before I pass out. So here's an esoteric question for you. You know the the annuity puzzle. I don't think there's a puzzle. I think I have my own answer to it. Right. But in terms of especially your views across two countries, like what do you think the holdback is with the adoption of these products to greater rates? Well, I think it's not so much pricing or low interest rate environment versus high interest rate environment, which you could also say that's a hogwash objection. It is. Um, At the end of the day, the price is the price and longevity is what matters. And you know what you're going to get. Right. But I think ultimately, in my my personal belief, it gets back to psychology and and, uh, behavioral finance. I mean, if you talk to any financial advisor, such as yourself, they would even say, my practice is 90% psychology and maybe 10% the numbers. I always say that the tissues are here not for returns, but for what happens in people's <laughs> lives. Yeah. And uh, people, uh, we've been involved in a lot of research and, and uh, we do research every year with with Greenwald and Associates, both in Canada and in the U.S., to kind of gauge the not only how consumers value these guarantees, but whether or not they understand them. But they want something like Social Security or the government yeah. support of a guarantee Everybody but they don't want to pensions. buy it. Exactly. They, they will love pensions, but they don't want to buy it with their own money. Yeah. And uh, they don't want to give up control. And that aversion to lack of control not only sits with the consumer, but also <laughs> sits with the advisor at some point, yeah. too. So I think really it's positioning and framing the purchase of an annuity. And that's where we come back to the process. If it's a product sale, it's never going to get off the ground. But if you position it as part of a process and say, look, yeah. this is another piece that you put into the portfolio, then that framing and yeah. that and overcoming that behavioral barrier becomes a little easier. Yeah. And to me, it just comes down to sticker shock. I mean, that might be the single largest check these people cut for anything other than the house, right? Like you tell someone, you know, I had a case that comes to mind. It was a million dollar household and basically did the math utilizing your tools and, you know, double checked it and on the financial planning software and found, you know what, optimal scenario scenario is let's take $320,000, part that in annuity, joint last to die. And, you know, your longevity, your probability of success on Monte Carlo and longevity tests basically goes to the 90s, right? So the odds you have to do something are sub 10%. No, they just would not go for it. The idea of turning over 300 plus thousand dollars in one check of their life savings was just not going to go. Right. And yeah, it's, it is, it is what it is. Uh, you can't get past it. But yeah, it's, it's behavioral. But again, the entire thing, if you, it's hilarious because you asked them the question, you know, if you could buy into this well-known pension plan, how would you do it? And like, oh yeah, I'd, I'd love to be. I, would, I wish I was a member of that pension plan. You give them the option to do 
it themselves and they're just like, oh, hold on a second. <laughs> like it's not the often said of, you know, if some of these pensions got into the uh, annuity business themselves, they'd probably do very well. Sure. Yeah. Although they don't want those <laughs> obligations. Like that's not what they're there for. <laughs> that's why they invented insurance companies. Yeah, right? exactly. Especially in the US where they're just desperately trying to get rid of the obligations. Yeah. So basically, what are some of the major challenges you guys encounter in, in doing what you're doing? Is it sounds like the carriers have been pretty good at uh, working in collaboration with you. So where are the roadblocks you're seeing? Well, a couple things. Getting to your point, it's not a slam dunk with the carriers, and, and we're working more more with with newer carriers. And mm. in some cases, a love hate relationship. They'll tell us they say we love you guys and we hate you guys. We love you more than we oh, hate look. you, but you're helping us with business through transparency, see, like yeah, the, the, as they as they grit their teeth oh, and bite yeah. their lip, right? Yeah. So, but at the end of the day, it ends up well for them when when they do, and. For what we're doing, you know, we feel we're doing something new and different in that when you're trying to support the rationale for placing an annuity product uh, with a client, and there's, a, again, a lot of compliance and regulatory elements that go into that as far as what you put in the client file and what have mm-hmm. you, what we're trying to do is solve the last 10% of that due diligence, if you will, mm-hmm. to make that recommendation bulletproof through the quantitative analysis. In other words, you can look around for the best rate as possible, but if somebody that's one really, dimension due diligence, that's not the full story. No, right? exactly. If they like the Sun Life logo and that's their decision to buy yeah. a product, and as long as that's documented in the client file, yeah, and based upon today's regulatory environment, okay, well that that fits the bill. But yeah. the reality is, what is the best economic decision for the client, and and what we can do by a again a transactional platform that can do comparative illustrations and prove out. The quantitative element of that decision, we're just adding another layer of yep. bubble wrap, if you will. To Absolutely. But I mean, that's so necessary because I mean, not just from what I believe is a moral standpoint of making sure your due diligence, but you're completely on trend with the global trend towards basically professionalizing this industry and making sure that we're not just working off rules of thumb like 4% or we're not just basically working off what we think is this the best thing, but there's actually a quantifiable reason behind it that backs our decision. And that's something that frankly, we not only owe it to ourselves as professionals, will be owed to our clients in general in order to do the best job for them. And hopefully that eventually becomes actual law, but that because sadly <laughs> needs to become a law, but it is what it is. <laughs> so one last question I asked everybody before we wrap up every time. So what excites you most about what you're doing in terms of like what's getting you out of bed? What's, what's, what's the most exciting thing about your industry, your job, your position, this company? What is it that fuels you? I think we're making a difference. I think we can help the industry get through its challenges in selling and positioning annuities to do the right thing. And whether we're working with a regulator or an advisory firm or the carrier or a university for that matter, as they're looking to train and, and establish programs for financial planning. Okay. Um, we're going to talk about that before you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think um, there's been a, a real gap around this. Nobody could really get a sense of how, the performance of these, again, somewhat complex products, how they would actually perform through a independent evaluator such as ourselves. Now, we're not consumer reports. We're not gauging whether something's a two-star versus a five-star. <laughs> yeah. But like I said, we're, we're providing a platform, whether it's our assumptions or it's your assumptions, that you can plug through the equation and get a sense of really what's, what's the miles per gallon of this car. 
you know, it's one thing to look at, go shopping for a car and just yep. look at the curb weight and how many cylinders it has and horsepower yep. and, and all, and how many cup holders, but that's not going to tell you how it's going to perform. What we do is uh, provide that number, which is the biggest number on that whole sticker, which is the miles per gallon. And it's such a challenge because the only number that people have to date is basically the cost is the fee, right? Right. And oftentimes, and I know, I mean, I've seen it from experience. The first thing that, that a, an advisor in competition is going to do is they're going to go after the price, right? Because typically, unfortunately, most of them don't have a really good value proposition. So in the absence of value cost is the only thing that matters. And you may have bought this fund with the higher cost for a very tangible reason, right? A very beneficial reason to the plan, everything that you got, we've just talked about for the last half hour. And it kind of opens up a blind spot for, for attack, right? To, right? to the lesser educated advisor or, less, or, more, or more nefarious ones. So being able to not only back that up, but fully build up the diligence and, and create create the real reason and the real scientific backing for why you're using something like that, frankly, is is exactly the way the industry's got to go. And what I would just add before we move on to the next question is that what you'll see and what we show is just because one product is more expensive than the other doesn't mean it's a bad product. In yeah. fact, it provides most often the better value. So it's not so much of making a decision of the cost of one product being the higher than the other. The decision is whether or not I'm going to buy a Ford Taurus or a Cadillac. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I totally get that. And it's it's nice to see tools being developed to help explain that value proposition and actually quantify that value. So thank you for that. So normally there isn't another question, but you mentioned something about universities. So I'm very curious about this. You guys are working in conjunction with some universities on developing curriculum around this? Is no, that the case no, or just uh, tools around we it? We make our information available. I mean, for academic research, I get for that. For academic research. Marsh is not going to let you not do that, but go no, on. Exactly. <laughs> right. But uh, universities, such as uh, Texas Tech, for example, well, yeah, you know, they have financial planning program and we make our platform available to their students as a resource for some of their research and you know information they're trying to gather for that purpose so ultimately we're trying to help the whole industry we want to see Absolutely. the whole tide rise if you will and we think um, having more accessible information at the point where somebody's not only at the university trying to get a gauge that there's this thing called an annuity and this is how it works but another area that's been a, a real barrier in our industry is the lack of education around accreditation programs. I would argue that <laughs> the CFP designation, there's probably, you know, out of the volumes and volumes of information that you have to study and, and, and yeah. take an exam for, there's probably a little insert on page 47 on what annuity is. Now, I'm over generalizing that, but there, there ain't a lot of um, yeah. focus on a lot of those programs in uh, positioning annuities as part of financial plan. I think it's getting better and there's other accreditations coming out, but I think that's another area where that needs to improve. Agreed. I mean, having taken CFPs on both sides of the border and the CFA, part of which was written by Moshe, so I heard his voice while I was reading it. <laughs> you know, I'm seeing that start to happen, start to change. However, it's still very, very minor. And I kind of get the delicate balance they're writing with that. It's, you know, they're not going to get into something that could be a volume in itself. So it's a challenge. And uh, for those of you in Canada who aren't aware of this, but you can actually get a PhD in financial planning at Texas Tech, which when I heard that, I was like, <laughs> what? But uh, yeah, it's, it's, definitely, it's, it's interesting to see the concurrent development on how the academic body of work is, is happening on both sides of the border. border. So very excited and, and thank you for contributing to that because it's sorely needed. So Gary, thank you very much. This has been great. And any last thoughts or comments? No, thank you, Jason. I appreciate you having me. Oh, my pleasure. Take care. 
So that was my interview with Gary Baker, and I hope you enjoyed that. Not too often you find a fintech that's 35 years old, but it's uh, kind of nice to come across as one of the older ones from time to time. And just a reminder again about my LinkedIn page and the link to the iFit conference. I will also include that in the show notes. And with that, this is Jason Ferreira signing off from Fintech Impact. Until next time. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at fintechimpact.co.